Ephesians chapter 6, our topic, uh, Standing Against Satan, uh, part 7, and we're up to the shield of faith. We're looking at the what the Holy Spirit tells us to do to fight against Satan and his minions. And I'll begin reading at verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. <coughs> stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And here's our text for today, verse 16. Above all, taking the shield of faith, with which you'll be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Let's end with the reading of God's holy word. We're looking today at the shield of faith. That'll be our topic for the whole sermon. One of the most important parts of our armor is the shield of faith. For the protection against blows to the arms and body and legs. You're all familiar with a shield. There's all different kinds. The, Ro the Roman shield was quite big. The shields that Paul would have been familiar with were about two and a half feet wide and about four feet in length. They were covered with thick leather and could withstand strong blows and arrows, sword blows and arrows. Try to take a knife and take some really thick cured leather and try to stick a knife through it. It's not easy. The Apostle compares the shield to a Christian's faith in verse 16. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. <clears throat> this verse is naturally divided into two parts. First, there is Paul's imperative or exhortation. Above all, take the shield of faith. Then second, the Apostle gives us a reason as to why the shield of faith is so important as an offensive weapon, with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. Now, as we study Paul's exhortation, we need to define faith according to Scripture and contrast it with, a false, with false and heretical concepts of it. Then we need to consider how we use Christian faith as a shield, and in doing so, we will answer the question as to why Paul says that biblical faith is our most important defensive weapon against satanic attacks. So let's look first, what is biblical faith? Very important question. The Bible, I didn't look it up, but if you go to your Strong's Exhaustive Concordance and look up the word faith or look up the word believe or look up the word belief, you'll see that it appears throughout each book of the New Testament many times. As we define biblical faith, we need to dispel some common erroneous concepts of this term found among unbelievers and many professing Christians. It is popular to speak of faith as an irrational leap in the dark. When I see 
so-called scientist, science falsely so-called on TV shows, on well, on YouTube, and that's usually how they define faith. Yeah, you got religion over here, and that's this irrational leap in the dark, and then you got science over here, which is based on real evidence. Well, that's not true. It's not true. Faith is regarded as a willingness to accept what is absurd and illogical. Faith is presented as something that people fall back upon when they lack solid evidence. It is seen by secular humanists as the opposite of empirical science or things that can be proved. Now, they say that, but they believe in macroevolution, which has no evidence whatsoever. It's a supposition. It's a presupposition that's imposed on the evidence. So they're very inconsistent, and they themselves are very irrational. Such a view of faith may be fine for an Eastern mystic or an existentialist, but it has nothing to do with Scripture. If faith is blind or irrational, then Christianity is irrational, and nothing could be further from the truth. The evidence that the scriptures are inspired, the inspired infallible word of God, and contain a perfect, totally accurate record of Christ's redemption and doctrine is overwhelming. And when we say that the Bible's accurate, it's not simply accurate with regard to doctrine and the doctrine of salvation, it's, ac it's accurate with regard to science, it's accurate with regard to history, it's accurate with regard uh, to everything of which it speaks. To say that it's accurate with regard to religion, but it's not accurate with regard to science is absurd. If it's not accurate with regard to science, then how, how do we know if it's accurate with regard to faith? God doesn't make mistakes. The Bible is not only self-authenticating. For example, the prophecies perfectly fulfilled. There's no other religious book in the world. The Bhagavad Gita, the Upanishads, the, the, the Quran. Uh the Jewish Talmud. There's no book in the world except the Bible that contains dozens and dozens of and dozens of prophecies that are very detailed that have been fulfilled perfectly. And that is ignored. And what, what do secular humanists and modernists and liberals do with that? Extremely strong evidence. It's proof. It's 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 proof that the Bible's the word of God. What do they do? Oh, well, the book of Daniel was written after the events happened. Or the book of Isaiah must have been written after the events happened. They simply lie and make up stuff because they don't want to face the truth because they love their sin and they don't want to repent. The book of Daniel, which was written when it was supposed to be written, prophesied the next four world kingdoms perfectly. It prophesied when Christ would come perfectly. And it prophesied... A number of things perfectly. And of course, Isaiah. There's the prophecies fulfilled, the perfect harmony of doctrine and history. Can imagine a book written, a 66 books written by several different authors over a period of a few thousand years with absolute perfect harmony of doctrine. If that wasn't inspired, that would be impossible. There are like 200 Christian denominations because Christians can't even agree. But the Bible's perfect. The 66 books written over thousands of years. The amazing revelation and glorification of the infinite personal God who exists. The Bible exalts God. 
the revelation of a perfect system of ethics and justice. Only the Bible contains a system of perfect justice. No other book does. And the revelation of a system of salvation that truly saves man and yet glorifies God and honors God's righteousness. But it is also proved by archaeology. The veracity of biblical history has been demonstrated to be true in literally hundreds of important discoveries. You go back and read the liberals in the 19th century. And they said the Hittites don't even exist. That's something made up in the Bible. Then they discovered the Hittites. They said the Jews were never in Babylon. Then they have proof that the Jews were in Babylon. They said that King David didn't exist. And now we have proof that David existed. They said that Jesus may not have even existed. He Maybe it'd be a figment of their imagination. We have proof that Jesus existed. And we could go on and on and on. The fivefold portico in the book of John. They said, well, that we've never discovered anything like that. They simply made that up. And then they discovered it. Archaeologists discovered the same one mentioned in the book of John. I could give you hundreds of examples. That's not true of Mormonism. That's certainly not true of Islam, which is simply just a bunch of bullpucky made up by some satanic guy who was a rapist and a murderer. And it's certainly not true of the Upanishads and the Bhagavad Gita, which is nothing but mythology. The veracity of the biblical history has been demonstrated to be true by literally hundreds of important discoveries. Also, geology, paleontology, the evidence for the creation of the earth and all living creatures is overwhelming. And logic. The biblical world and life view is demonstrated to be the only true worldview due to the impossibility of the contrary. And I tell you, if you look, you get these big thick books and you, and you look at the charts of the discoveries of fossils. Do they tell us that there's a slow, progressive evolution of all things to what they are now? And the answer is absolutely not. Things appear completely out of nowhere in the fossil record with no preceding things. The trilobites and those things that we found in the ocean. There's no evidence of evolution at all. There's no evidence that this evolved into that. None whatsoever. Now, what do they do? They take an extinct horse that may be smaller, and it's a horse. It looks just like a horse. It has bones like a horse. And they say, well, this horse evolved into that horse. They don't know that. And even if it did evolve from this horse into that horse, it's still a horse. Species don't become new and different species. The reason that secular humanists present biblical faith as irrational is due to the fact that all men are fallen and cannot see or perceive the truth apart from a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit on man's heart. And you can look these up later. John 3, 3. <coughs> no one can see the kingdom of heaven without regeneration. Second, 1 Corinthians 2, 14-15. The natural man cannot perceive the things of God. And of course, see, compare 1 John 2, 19-20 and Romans 8, 7-8. <coughs> The natural man hates the things of God. He has a natural hatred for the truth of Scripture. So don't expect him to believe it or submit to it, apart from a supernatural work of grace. They define biblical faith as absurd because they hate the truth and they suppress it in unrighteousness, for, uh, Romans 1, 18-23. They have an axe to grind against the true God and are of their father the devil, John eight forty four. Remember, Jesus said to the Pharisees, why don't you believe my word? I'll tell you why. Because you're covenantally in league with your father, the, the devil. 
Biblical faith is solid and rational because it is based on God's testimony in Scripture. <coughs> Even though we have not personally witnessed the historical facts of creation, or the giving of the law, or the first preaching of the gospel, we have an assured conviction due to the source of revelation. The author of Hebrews says that, this is 11.1, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. We have not personally witnessed the resurrection. We have not personally witnessed the crucifixion. But we have a faithful testimony that we can sink our teeth in, and it has a solidity to our faith. Now, when you're standing in a house, now not like Texas where these houses are built on concrete, but if you're up north and you're standing on the floor of a house, have you seen the foundation of the house that's holding up the floor? No, you, ha you, you haven't seen it. But you believe it's there because without it, you'd be falling. <laughs> well, we may not have seen it, but the evidence for it is quite clear. We believe, trust, and grasp that which is promised and therefore hoped for as something true, real, and solid. Because God's word is true, it is trustworthy. And this is the common definition when we talk about faith found among Orthodox Protestant theologians, both past and present. Here's just a few. Francis Turretin writes this. The object of faith is none other than the written word of God according to the measure of revelation. Faith Pistis is one thing, knowledge, gnosis, is another. The latter is gained even from nature by, belong, by beholding the works of God, but the former only from supernatural grace and revelation, by hearing the word of God, which alone is the object of faith, piston. Here's what John Owen says. All faith is an ascent upon testimony, and divine faith is an ascent upon a divine testimony. John Howe. Why do I believe Jesus to be the Christ? Because the eternal God hath given his testimony concerning him that he is so. A man's believing comes all to nothing without this, that there is a divine testimony. And again he says this, I believe such a thing as God reveals it, because it is reported to me upon the authority. And here's the Confession of Faith. The Westminster Confession of Faith says, <coughs> By this faith, a Christian believeth to be true. Whatsoever is revealed in the word, for the authority of God himself speaking therein. And then, um, let me see who this is. This is A.A. A. Hodge. This is Charles Hodge's son, who taught at Princeton. Saving faith rests upon the truth of the testimony of God speaking in his word. Saving faith receives as true all the contents of God's word without exception. And when we speak of the word of God, we're talking about the 66 books of the Old and New Testament. We're not talking about the Apocrypha or human tradition. The word of God. To believe in God means that a person believes or trusts in everything that God has spoken. And then here is a quote from... This is Gordon Clark. Mark 1.15 commands us to believe in the gospel. Some people make a distinction between believing a written account and believing in a person. 
This verse undermines such a distinction. Really, when one believes in a person, he believes the words the person speaks. He believes his promises and his assertive ability to perform. This is what is meant by saying we trust in a person. Now let's look at spurious forms of faith briefly. And the reason I've done this is it's very helpful to look at some of the mistakes that are very common. These are common mistakes. I've only considered a few. Regarding faith, it'll help you sharpen your understanding of what true faith is. So this is called spurious forms of faith. As we study biblical faith, the shield against satanic attacks, as a shield against satanic attacks, we will sharpen our understanding by looking at unbiblical forms of faith that are not useful for our armor. First, and this is very obvious, but it is crucial that our faith is directed to the proper object. We're not saved by a faith in faith. We're saved by faith in Christ. We're not saved by faith in the goodness of man or the Bhagavad Gita. We're saved by faith in Scripture, which reveals the true Christ unto us. True faith is instrumental. And if the object of faith is erroneous or some kind of heretical fantasy, then such a faith is enslaving, not liberating. Saving faith is faith in Jesus Christ as he is revealed in the scriptures. 1 Corinthians 15.3 Modernists, cultists, Romanists, Muslims, and even many Hindus proclaim some kind of belief in Jesus of Nazareth. Jews don't. Muslims do. They regard him as a great prophet. Hindus regard Jesus as a great, a great yogi. But they do not accept the biblical testimony regarding him and thus have faith in a humanistic creation. They have emptied the name of Christ and the purpose of his redemptive mission of its biblical meaning. They may sound very pious and may even offer worship to Jesus, but their false faith only helps damn their souls. Note John's word, his words, whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God, 2 John 9. Modernists, also called Christian liberals, and they're not liberal and they're not Christians. They're evil secular humanists that are in favor of murdering babies and sodomy. Reject the divinity of Christ his miraculous virgin birth and miracles, his crucifixion as a vicarious atonement or blood sacrifice offered to God, his glorious real bodily resurrection on the third day, it's a literal bodily resurrection, and his ascension into heaven to sit at God's right hand. I used to listen to a lit, uh, modernist when I was getting ready for church back in the uh, 90s. When I lived in Lansing, there was a, a guy who had a radio show. And he would say things like, well, yeah, we believe Jesus rose from the dead, and then he would spiritualize it where it didn't have any meaning. He didn't believe in a literal bodily resurrection, that Christ literally came out of the tomb, and now the tomb is empty. He didn't, they believe the body rotted away, but the spirit of Jesus, his message lives on, or some stupid stuff like that. That's not the gospel. Jesus literally came out of that tomb. And the door opened not to let him out. The door opened so they could go inside and witness the empty tomb. He could pass through walls. <clears throat> they regard Jesus as both a moral teacher, yet at the same time also teach 
that he was a gross antinomian who accepts homosexuality, fornication, transvestitism, transgenderism, abortion on demand, etc. So they hold to this idea that Jesus came, he was just a rabbi, he came as a great moral teacher. But if you're a homo and you're a sodomite and are doing all these crazy things, well, he accepts what you do. You don't have to repent, which is absolutely contrary to what the New Testament says. The Hindu or Eastern mystic views Jesus of Nazareth as simply one great yogi among many. They reject his sacrificial atoning death and instead speak of Christ's consciousness, which is simply a mixture of Eastern philosophy with Christian terminology. I was taught that. I used to be into Hinduism. <clears throat> you need to have Christ's consciousness, which is just, they take Hinduism and they place it on Christ and make him into a yogi. They might, some would say, well, he eliminated a lot of bad karma by his death, but they don't talk about sin, because they don't really believe in sin and guilt. They just believe in getting bad karma. <coughs> and it's a really absurd system, because there's no need to follow it or be holy or anything, because eventually, eventually, sooner or later, you're just going to merge back into the eternal Godhead. You know, they look at God as an energy field. Muslims believe that Jesus was a great prophet, but emphatically reject his divinity. They don't believe he was God. They don't believe he was the Son of God. And they reject emphatically his atoning death. They believe that Jesus snuck away and they crucified Judas in the place of Christ. That's their teaching. Romanists place the Virgin Mary above Jesus Christ as the Queen of Heaven and as a co-mediatrix, which is blasphemous. They also deny the once and for all perfection and sufficiency of Jesus' sacrificial death, and they claim to re-sacrifice Jesus every week in the Mass. That also is wicked and blasphemous. What does it say in the book of Hebrews? He died once for sin. His sacrifice is perfect. He doesn't need to be re-sacrificed in the Mass. That's rank paganism. They teach that good works done through love are necessary in addition to Jesus' death for justification. Their teachings are heretical, idolatrous, and at times even blasphemous. And I think John Calvin's comments on Jesus' statement in his commentary on John's Gospel is very helpful. Quote, And we have believed and known. The word believe is put first because the obedience of faith is the commencement of right understanding. Or rather, because faith itself is truly the eye of the understanding. But immediately afterwards, knowledge is added, which distinguishes faith from erroneous and false opinions. For Mohammedans and Jews and Papists believe, but they neither know nor understand anything. Knowledge is connected with faith, because we are certain and fully convinced of the truth of God not in the same manner as human sciences are learned, but when the Spirit seals it in our hearts. End of quote. And he's getting that, obviously, from Augustine, who taught the same thing. I believe that I may know. Now, you have to have certain knowledge to have faith, but you can never interpret anything correctly, especially in the sphere of religion, without having faith. Now, the false form of belief was a serious problem, even in Jesus' own day, due to the false doctrine of the Pharisees. And our Lord was aware of this issue as we read John 2, 23-24. <clears throat> now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, 
During the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men. That's very interesting. It says they believed, but he didn't want to have anything to do with these people. Because of the miracles that Jesus performed, many Jews believed that he was a great prophet or even the Messiah. But Jesus did not trust himself to them because he knew that their concept of who he was was false. They were trusting in a physical warrior king who was going to come and kick the Romans' rear end militarily. See 6.15. That's what they trusted in. He wanted nothing to do with that. His kingdom is spiritual. Our weapons are not material, they're spiritual. <clears throat> they were not interested in who Jesus was according to the prophets. For example, Isaiah 53 or Psalm 22. What do the prophets teach? Well, they have two very different views of Jesus because they talk about his first coming as a period of suffering, as a period of humiliation, as a period where he's going to be rejected by his own people and he's going to suffer in the place of his people as a vicarious atonement for sin. Isaiah 53 is explicit on that matter. And there are other many passages. That's what the whole sacrificial system pointed to. It's also the types. The need for a sinless substitute to die in the people's place, the Day of Atonement, for example. Our Lord spoke about this problem in the parable of the sower. He spoke about those who hear the gospel and never really understand it. Matthew 13, 19, then the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. They profess for a short while, and then they fall away. Second, one must make sure that he does not have a mere historical or dead faith. This refers to a mere assent to certain propositions, or what we call a dead orthodoxy, without any demonstration in the life that one's belief is genuine. What does the Bible say about the demons? Well, it says that they believe and tremble. James 2.19. They know all the facts about Christ. They know that he's fully God and fully man. They know that he came to earth, that he died on the cross and rose from the dead. They know those things. Yet they are, are the son of God's enemies. They hate God and they refuse to obey or serve him. The demons call Jesus the Son of God and even acknowledge his role in the final judgment in Matthew 8.29, Luke 4.34, Mark 1.24, and 5.7. They call him the Son of God. Have you come to judge us before the time? They know that he's going to be the judge. And they even acknowledge in Acts 16.17 that the gospel of Christ is the way of salvation. There's a, a girl with a spirit of divination possessed by a demon. And they, they refer to Paul and his associate as men preaching the way of salvation. But their knowledge and their intellectual belief does not mean that they trust in the Son of God and want to serve him. They despise the truth. Similarly, James speaks of a faith without works as a dead faith, James 2.18-20. It is a false faith, a non-saving faith rooted in self-deception. <clears throat> Theologians refer to such a faith as a non-trusting or a non-relying upon bare assent to certain facts revealed in Scripture. 
It is like accepting certain things as true historically, but without any real interest in those events. And I remember when I, I was a security guard at the Philadelphia Inquirer when I went to seminary. This is 40 years ago, over 40 years ago. And um, I would witness to these black guys, these Philadelphia guys who were from the ghetto. And they'd say to me, you know, everything you say is true. You've demonstrated it. I, you know, they'd say, I, I really believe what you say. But, and then there'd be a but. And then the guy would show me his wallet and he'd show me, look at all these mistresses I have. And he'd show me like 12 different pictures of different women that he was having sex with besides his wife. He said, oh, I can't give that up. Well, he has a mere intellectual assent, but he's not willing to repent and follow Christ. That's not true faith. That's a dead faith. It is an ascent without grasping or clinging to Jesus as the pearl of great price, as the most important person in one's life. People are attracted to the idea of going to heaven. But their real trust is reserved for their idols. For example, hedonism, sexual immorality, money, popularity in this world. Now, if that guy really believed, what would he do? call all those mistresses and tell them to get lost. I've never seen you ever again. I'm never talking to you ever again. And he'd confess his sins to his wife and ask her to forgive him. That's repentance. Not, well, you know, I can't give these women up. I'm having a great time, man. This is fun. I got all these beautiful women. I can't give that up. That's not repentance. So that means he doesn't have true faith. Most people in our day who regard themselves as Christians do not have saving faith. They either have a false object of faith or a counterfeit form of faith. They may go to church, profess that they believe in Jesus, or in today's Armenian jargon say that they have allowed the Savior to come into their heart. Which is a really strange thing to say. Now the Bible teaches speaks of receiving Christ, but it defines it as believing in Christ. That's the first chapter of John. What we need is God to accept us. We don't need to accept God. We need to believe in Christ for our salvation. Then God will accept us. Sounds like we're sovereign telling God what to do. Yeah, hey, Jesus, you're up there. You're begging me to let you in. I'll let you in. But their lifestyle indicates that they really could not care less about the gospel or the kingdom of God. Now, I acknowledge this is somewhat uh, somewhat of a difficult topic in that one's faith can only be gauged by habitual obedience. On the one hand, we don't want Christians always doubting their salvation. And a lot of people who are very holy, that are very serious about Christianity, are constantly having doubts about their salvation. Why? Because their hearts are sensitive and they know they're sinning. They know they have lust. They know they have problems. And so they constantly are, you know, am I really saved? Well, remember, we're not, we're not uh, sinless. We want to be habitually obedient. But on the other hand, we must never encourage antinomianism. Much of the problem surrounding this topic in our day in evangelical circles arises from the dispensational heresy, and they really teach this, 
that repentance is a Jewish doctrine that does not apply to New Testament believers. Or in their scheme, Gentile believers. They, they may say, some will say, well, the Jews have to repent. They have to try to be holy, but Gentiles don't have to. And uh, when John MacArthur put out a book many years ago called Lordship Salvation, where he talked about the necessity of repentance, uh, they accused him of being uh, a Judaizer. Now, MacArthur was sloppy and said some things that were sloppy that were similar to the Federal Vision, but he was corrected by people like James Montgomery Boyce and J.I. Packard, and he, apparently the second edition was more accurate. <clears throat> but the gospel is summarized as faith in Jesus Christ and repentance toward God in Acts 20.21 20, and 26.20, which is the gospel preached to the Gentiles. Faith towards God, uh, uh, repentance, I mean, faith in Jesus Christ and repentance toward God. Now, true saving faith is always accompanied by a change of mind concerning God, Christ, and sin, and this change of mind always results in a changed life. That's why some people talk about repentance being the flip side of true faith. Although we are not saved by a repentant life, we're not saved by a repentance. Repentance doesn't get rid of your sin. It doesn't earn anything. We're not saved by a repentant life. Repentance from sin always accompanies real faith. We must remember that true faith embraces the whole Christ as he is revealed in Scripture. We must trust in him as our Savior, and the Savior has risen victorious. He is now Lord over everything in heaven and earth. The four spiritual laws of, of Campus Crusade, which are really the four spiritual flaws. At the end of the track, it has a little picture. And it, it basically says to people, because they're dispensational, it says, you can accept Jesus as your Savior, and you're saved, you're going right to heaven. But we recommend you receive him as Lord as well. And then they, they show the Christian where there's a throne and Christ isn't on the throne. And then they show the Christian who's really dedicated and they, they, they put Christ on the throne and, and, and receive him as Lord. That's antinomianism. That's heresy. Christ isn't a pie. You can't divide Christ up. He's Savior and he's Lord. And you are to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you look up the word Lord, it's found throughout the book of Acts and preaching over and over and over again. And the word Savior is only used like twice. The emphasis is on his lordship because his saviorship and his lordship are connected. His priestly uh, office is not separated from his kingly office. So you receive him as Lord. Well, if you receive him as Lord, you believe in him as Savior and Lord, what are you going to do? You're going to lay down the weapons of your warfare and repent and follow Christ. Now, once again, are you saved because you, because of your repentance? And I'm talking about the way you live, and the answer is no. But true faith always leads to repentance or sanctification. <clears throat> we must remember that true faith embraces the whole Christ. He is now Lord over everything in heaven and earth. Therefore, the eye that we can look to him for salvation yet ignore his lordship is absurd, an absurd and deadly heresy. I mean, it's ridiculous. Oh, yeah, I believe in you, Jesus. I, I, I believe in you. I receive you as, as my Savior. Oh, but your commandments? <laughs> I'm not ready for that. 
I'm going to go out and take drugs and I'm going to fornicate like a wild dog. Maybe down the road, I'll obey your commandments. Nonsense. What did Jesus say? If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. In 1 John, how do you know whether you really have true faith or not? How do you know whether you're regenerated or not? You keep the commandments of God. Now, the context there, it's habitually. Because in chapter 1, he says, anybody who claims to be without sin calls God a liar. We're all sinners. And he teaches us to pray every single day for the forgiveness of our sins. Yet, there's a difference between a guy who has a lifestyle of serving the devil and a lifestyle of trying to serve Christ, yet he's having some problems in his thought life or whatever. <clears throat> Let us remember Jesus' strong warning to all false professors. Oh, I forgot to write it down. Oh, wait a minute. No, it's from uh, Matthew 7, 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, and these people call him Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Faith without works is dead. We can't look at people's heart. We don't know if somebody really has true faith. But if, you're, if you have a changed life and you've repented, that's great evidence that you have true faith. And then another one. Here's another one. Temporary faith. The Bible describes people who apparently believe for a period of time and then fall away. And the prime example is the parable of the sower. Matthew 13, 20 to 21. But he who received the word, uh, the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. And Luke's account says they believed for a while. Now, the, the, the word belief is used, but obviously it's not talking about a real faith. Because the Bible teaches that real faith perseveres. They appear very excited about Jesus. They go to church. And they may get involved in good works and evangelizing others. They may be baptized. But after a period of time, they eventually return to their former sinful life. And we're told the problem is they had no root. Their heart really wasn't changed. They really were not regenerated. And I've encountered many people like this. In fact, most people that I've witnessed to who embrace Christ for a time on the surface have fallen away. And they go back it's, it's, you know, they go back to fornicating and they go back to smoking pot and they go back to their old lifestyle. We're not talking about someone who makes a profession and is in church and is repented and yet is still has some struggles against sin. We're talking about somebody who goes back to the old life. There are also people who profess faith in Christ for quite some time. But, and this is from Matthew 13, 22, but the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and those people become unfruitful. As Paul said of Demas, who was once a co-worker of the gospel, with Paul. 2 Timothy 4, 9, Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. Here's Demas, he's on fire. He's going about town to town with Paul, going through hardships, in order to preach the gospel. And he decided, that's eh, not for me anymore, I'm going back to the world. 
Did he have true faith? No. He had temporary faith. Genuine faith in Christ always perseveres because it flows from an interior work of the Holy Spirit in regeneration. We must not embrace the grotesque error of Romanists, Armenians, and federal visionists that we produce a true faith by our perseverance. On the contrary, a true faith, which is a gift of grace from God, rooted in union with Christ, Ephesians 2.1 and 4-5, Ephesians 2, 8 to 9, John 3, 3, Acts 16, 14, Romans 6, 3 to 12, always perseveres. A faith that comes in regeneration, which renovates and cleanses the whole heart of a person, has solidity and perseverance. No matter what you go through, your trials, your tribulations, terrible things may happen. You may have persecution. But if you got true faith, if you've been regenerated, you're not going to fall away. Even if you back, David backslid, Solomon backslid, people backslide, they fall into sin, they might fornicate, they might, David fall, fell into sin for quite a time. But if you have true faith, you will repent, you will persevere. As in our discussion of habitual obedience, as an evidence of genuine faith, duration in following Christ faithfully to the very end is also an evidence of true saving faith. And the Apostle John recognized this reality when he said this, 1 John 2, 19. They went out from us. There were people, he's writing to a church, and some of the people left. They left the church. And this is, this is early, and this is not when you're going across the street to a different church. It may be better. There, there was only one church back then, and they left the church. They, they, they completely rejected Christ. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be made manifest that none of them were of us. In other words, they were never true believers. They never had genuine faith. A temporary faith is not a real faith. And therefore, in the long run, cannot protect oneself from the temptations of this world or the assaults of Satan. Sad, but true. Sad, but true. An unregenerate heart may outwardly be attracted to certain aspects of the gospel for a time. But that attraction is rooted in a false understanding and self-deception. It has no real solidity or trust. It is like a puff of smoke that blows away in the wind. Therefore, we need to examine ourselves and apply ourselves to perseverance in Christian discipleship and obedience. Note Paul's warning. Hebrews 3.12 Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. And the context of that, of course, is he discusses Israel in the wilderness. You know, they didn't enter God's rest. Why? They didn't have faith. They complained the whole time they were in the wilderness. They looked back to Egypt. They wanted to go back to the world. They didn't obey God. They rebelled against God constantly. And Paul explains it. They didn't have faith. Therefore, they didn't get to end into that salvation Sabbath rest. In our day of church growth methodology, where the seats are filled with slick entertainment, there is not a focus on biblical faith toward a scriptural object of faith. Rock and roll revivalism and emotional stories produce shaky converts that endure only for a time. They look like wheat, but as time passes, it becomes evident that they are truly tares. If we are to successfully wage warfare against Satan, we must focus on the quality, solidity, 
and endurance of our faith in the person and work of Christ. James 5.11 Indeed we count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. Job went through incredible trials. Horrible disease covering his whole body. His children killed. His property destroyed. His flock stolen. His wife, who was not, did not have true faith, said, Curse God and die. And Job said, No. My faith will not be shaken. And he was vindicated. Mark 13, 13. But you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. You've got to stand up for Christ. You've got to confess him before men. Jesus said, if you don't confess me before men, I'm not going to confess you before the Father. To stand up to the devil and his followers, we must have a genuine faith produced in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Our faith must have proper, correct scriptural knowledge as its object. One cannot believe in Jesus Christ, of which he is ignorant, or if the information that he has is false. Paul said, Romans 10, 14 and 17, How shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? So then, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Our knowledge of Christ is based on the testimony of Scripture, and therefore one must not make a false separation between faith in Jesus and faith in the inspired and fallible word of God and the facts which are presented together with a theological interpretation of those facts or historical events found therein. And, you know, you say, well, gee, Brian, this is such fundamental. This is such easy stuff. Uh, come on. Why are you going over this? Well, do you ever hear how Christians talk today? Do you ever hear how people talk? Well, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but I believe that homosexuality is okay. I mean, you're born that way, aren't you? They can practice homosexual. There's a, there's a pro-homosexual movement in the Christian Reformed Church. There's a pro-homosexual movement among the Southern Baptists. They, they've thrown out a few churches. There's a pro-homosexual movement in many denominations today. Because they're believing in a false Christ, an antinomian Christ, an a, a Christ that tolerates sin. Christ didn't come so that we could sin as we please. He came to remove the guilt of our sins and to renovate our hearts so we would obey. This faith must endure or be permanent to the very end. And it must not be a mere intellectual ascent without real trust and reliance on Christ. The faith which trusts in Jesus and secures salvation is a, heart, a hearty, grasping or laying hold of the Savior and what he accomplished. It is described as a coming to Christ, John 6.35, as receiving him, John 1.12, a looking to him, Isaiah 45.22, a fleeing to him for refuge, Hebrews 6.18, a laying hold of him as our only hope, Hebrews 6.18. And a believing in him. And I'm just going to give you a few. John 1, 12, 3, 16, and 18, 6, 35, and 40, 7, 38, 11, 25, and 26, 12, 44, and 46, 14, 12, etc. I could go on and on. There's passages throughout the whole New Testament. It is metaphorically compared to eating his flesh and drinking his blood. In John 6, 53 to 56. Appropriating him. Taking him in by faith. Receiving that gift by faith. Faith lays hold of it. This focus on faith as the instrument which grasps or appropriates Christ, the focus is on faith as the instrument which grasps or appropriates Jesus and his perfect redemption. In our day of what is called easy believism, 
this idea, well, I accept you, Jesus. Hey, Bob, let's go over to my house tonight. We're going to sort some coke and get some chicks. And we're going to fornicate and we're going to sort a bunch of coke and get drunk. That's not the gospel. And one of the problems is, of course, dispensationalism, as I noted, but another problem is nobody preaches the law anymore because they don't believe the law is binding on people anymore. If you look at the way the Puritans preach, and you look at the way Jesus and the apostles preach, they emphasize the law of God because then you know you need Christ. In our day of easy believism, the element of trust needs to be emphasized. Saving faith means that one accepts us through what the Bible says about Jesus and trusts in him. Faith consists in a fixed, unshaken trust and reliance upon him. As we depend on his promise, as a God that cannot lie and give ourselves up to him as the one that has a right to us, so we trust him as, in, as one in whom we can safely confide and on whom we can lay the whole stress of our salvation. Every bit of it is attributed to Christ. This act of faith more frequently insisted on in Scripture than in any other, it being a main ingredient in all the other graces which accompany salvation. And there is nothing by which God is more glorified. It is not one single perfection of the divine nature which is the object of it, but everything which has been named out concerning himself, a conducive to our blessedness. We trust him with all we have, for with all we hope, want, or hope for. And this implies a sense of our own insufficiency and nothingness, unworthiness, and a sense of this all-sufficient fullness. We're like naked beggars in the dust, dead of starvation, and reach out and grasp Christ as the bread of life. Nothing in my hand I bring, only to the cross I cling. And here's what Hodge says. This is A.A. Hodge again. Quote, By faith the Christian is said to be persuaded of the promises, to obtain them, to embrace them, to subdue kingdoms, to work righteousness, to stop the mouth of lions. Hebrews 11. All this plainly presupposes that faith is not a bare intellectual conviction of the truth, of truths revealed in the scriptures, but that it includes a hearty embrace of and a confident reliance upon Christ, his meritorious work, and his gracious promises. Okay, so now we know what faith is. I tried to keep it short. If you want more detail, I have a book on justification by faith alone on my website where I go into more detail, where I go into all the Greek grammar and everything to show that it's not, we're not saved because of faith, we're saved through faith as a gift. It's the instrument which lays hold of Christ. Well, how then is faith a shield? Well, it should be becoming obvious to you now, but let's look at that. Having defined biblical faith in some of the common abuses of the term, we would do well to consider how faith is a shield against temptations and attacks by demonic forces. <coughs> Paul speaks of faith as being able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, Ephesians 5.16b. Now, in ancient warfare, and you've probably seen this in movies, they would take their arrows and they would dip the tips in pitch or they would wrap them in cloth and put them in pitch and they'd light them on fire and they'd shoot them at the enemy. Very common. And these projectiles would strike terror into one's opponents as various things would catch on fire. Faith serves as a shield to quench these flaming projectiles because faith does have a few crucial things related to our uh, obedience. First, faith lays hold of Christ and unites us to him 
And it is the efficacy of a saving work that enables us by his spirit to overcome trials and temptations. Just read Romans chapter 6 and chapter 7. It's not you're justified by faith, now you're out on your own and have fun trying to be obedient. No, you're justified by Christ and now you're regenerated by the Holy Spirit and you possess the Spirit. And the Spirit uses the Word of God to convict you and cause you to prosper and to, to do the right things. You need the Holy Spirit if you're going to be sanctified. <clears throat> Without that interior work of the Spirit, unlawful lusts or desires can burn out of control, leading us to sin against God. We look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, not simply to be justified before God, but also to be sanctified. Faith grasps the Redeemer, and our precious Savior saves us from sin as a dominating, enslaving influence in our lives. And once again, we are not speaking of sinless perfection. It's very easy when you think about your mind and, and, and your remaining flesh, the problems you have. It's very easy to doubt your salvation. And you read John Calvin and you read Jonathan Owen on the way they describe themselves, men who are two of the most holy men around. It's very, e you know, if you're really convicted by the Holy Spirit, it's easy to doubt your salvation. Don't doubt your salvation. Just keep struggling and moving forward. It's the people that give up that need to doubt their salvation. We're not speaking of sinless perfection, but covenant faithfulness through thick and thin. The Christian who perseveres through trials and temptations does so by completely relying on Christ. Genuine believers may be hit and fall on their face. Think of Peter. But due to a work of the Holy Spirit, they never retreat or give up. They pray for forgiveness and deliverance from the evil one and continue forward in battle. Apostates throw in the towel and retreat to that old lifestyle of human autonomy and worldliness. Do Christians sin? Yes, they do. What does Jesus teach us? To pray every day. Father, forgive us our sins. Also, Father, deliver us from the evil one. We pray that every day. Because we're sinners. Do I mean by that that we're out riding on choppers with the Hell's Angels and we're selling drugs and getting whores? Of course not. But we have the flesh. Second, a trust in God's word is absolutely necessary for obedience because to faithfully follow what God commands requires a belief in what Yahweh has said, that what Yahweh has said is in fact absolutely true and the promises related to such obedience will be fulfilled by God. Okay, so you believe in Christ and you believe in God's word. This relationship between faith and obedience is found throughout the whole Bible. Noah had no empirical or scientific evidence of an approaching flood. But he believed in God's word and thus obeyed God's command to build the ark. And I forget, what did it say? It took 120 years to build the ark? So it's things like as big as a football field with many, many decks. Somebody built a replica in, I forget, Tennessee or Kentucky or somewhere, and it's, it's huge. It's, it's amazing. Him and his sons did that over many, many years. That required a lot of faith. The people who heard Noah preach, because he warned people of the impending flood, and of course the ark is a type of Christ. The only way to be safe is to be in Christ. The people who know his word, preached from God, did not believe, 
and they perished in their sins. Abraham left his hill country. He left his country and family behind to take possession of Canaan <clears throat> because he believed the promise of God, that he would be the father of many nations and that through his seed the whole earth would be blessed. Genesis 12 to 17. He endured many trials and, tr and believed God's word even when it contradicted normal biological limitations regarding childbearing. What was he, 100 years old and his wife was 99 or something like that? I don't know. He was way up there. And you know the devil's telling him, hey, come on, man, God's forsaken you, man. This can't happen. It's impossible to have a child when you're 100 years old. Your wife's 99. She's all shriveled up. She's barren. Give it up, Abraham. And he trusted God's promise. Eve had been given commands by God, but she did not believe God's promise in relation to that command and therefore sinned. Genesis 3.6. She abandoned the shield of faith for an autonomous empiricism. Tree looks really nice. That fruit sure looks tasty. Eve, exert your human autonomy. God really is not going to punish you for doing this. Look at how good it looks. The Israelites who were delivered from slavery in Egypt were disobedient and rebellious in the wilderness because they did not believe the promises attached to the law. Hebrews 3.19 and 4.2. The withstanding of temptations, afflictions, persecutions, and the fiery arrows of Satan requires real faith in who God and Christ are as well as what God says about the blessings of obedience and the curses of disobedience. You say, why is there so much lawlessness today? Why is crime such a problem? Why do you see these people, they go rob a store and shoot some guy in the face? They don't believe there's any consequences for sin. But if you believe in the judgment, you believe Christ is coming back and he's going to judge every living human being according to their works, you're not going to do those kind of things. You know they have consequences. They have consequences on earth, they bring temporal curses, and they have consequences in the afterlife. Eternal hellfire. Note how both are mentioned in Hebrews 11.6, the chapter, the great faith chapter. But without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to him must believe that he is, and that he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. You got faith in Christ? You got faith in the word of God? You trust both. Those who continue on in sin reveal that they really do not believe in Christ or his holy word. They convince themselves that violating God's moral law has no consequences. They live like secular humanists who believe in an impersonal universe without ethical absolutes and the judgment of a righteous, just, and holy God. You know, the guy who walks out on his wife and commits adultery. He certainly doesn't believe in the Word of God, does he? Belief in Jesus necessarily carries with it a belief or trust in God's Word, His commands, and His promises. We cannot please God without faith, for faith not only grasps Christ, but also submits to Him, waiting patiently for the promised reward. I should discuss this more. I, I think I mentioned it, but 
God gave the law, and then what did he do? He had a whole thing of curses and blessings associated curses for disobedience, blessings for obedience. If you believe in the moral law, you, you believe also in the curses and blessings. And when Israel fell into sin and idolatry, they didn't believe that. They didn't believe there would be any curses. They believed they'd be blessed by disobeying God. They believed they'd be blessed by following the, the, the gods of the Canaanites, the Asherahs and the Baals. This kind of faith is necessary to die to, the biblical faith is necessary to die to self, pick up one's cross, and follow Jesus. Our Lord said, John 12, 25 to 26, He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me, and where I am, that my servant, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. Now, I believe in going to the beach and having fun. I believe in relaxation. Lawful, there's lawful things that are wonderful. There's many lawful things that are great. But we're here to serve Christ. We're not here for pleasures. By faith, we fight the good fight for Christ. 1 Timothy 6.12 it is only by faith that we achieve victory and overcome the world. 1 John 5, 4. By faith we live, Galatians 2, 20, and stand, Romans 11, 20, 2 Corinthians 1, 24. Faith in God's word is a sure, solid foundation that can endure all st the storms of life. Matthew 7, 24 to 25. It is only by the shield of faith that Satan is successfully resisted. As Peter says, 1 Peter 5, 8 to 9. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a raging lion, a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him. Steadfast in the faith. Knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. Trials and persecutions and sufferings are our life as Christians. They're going to happen. Are you ready? Do you have the faith that stands up? Do you have the faith that perseveres? Do you have the faith that follows Christ when it looks, it doesn't look logical to you? Or you might want to do something else. True faith always submits. It is faith that causes us to desire and obey God's will. Without this shield, a person is helpless. Remember, every example of true faith in God and his word resulted in obedience covenant faithfulness, and perseverance. Faith is our present grace that travels with us every day on the narrow path to heaven. And let us pray like David in, in God's providence. We sang the psalm today. Remember the word to your servant upon which you have caused me to hope. This is my comfort in my affliction for your word has given me life. Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. So pick up the shield of faith. That is why he says it's above all. Because without faith, there are no other graces. Without faith, everything falls to the ground. You have to have faith. You have to persevere in biblical faith. You have to obey the word of God due to your faith. You have to show your love of Christ due to your faith. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for the gift of faith. We thank you for the merits of Christ, your Son. 
that he achieved a perfect salvation. And on the basis of that perfect salvation, his sinless life, his sacrificial death, his glorious resurrection, you have sent the Holy Spirit into our hearts to regenerate us and given us the gift of faith and repentance that we could follow you. Strengthen our faith, Lord, as we live in crazy times, times of wickedness when your judgment is deserved upon virtually every nation on earth. It looks like bad times are coming. So strengthen our faith to endure it. Give us wisdom to prepare for it. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>